0: to grab a copy of god's word turn to first timothy chapter 6 with me first timothy chapter 6 where we'll be grab a copy can we just thank our worship choir one more time it's so good to worship with so many people up here it's been great nate thanks for your leadership man it was so great to have everybody up there first timothy chapter 6 where we'll be in just a moment um it's been great for me, and I hope it has been for you as well, as we've been going through uh, this book for really a couple months now. Uh, we had a little bit of a break a couple weeks ago. Uh, but it's been wonderful to hear from First Timothy and really the call that God has on the life of the believer and on the church. Chad's led us really well. encourage you to pray for him and his family. Uh, this week, they're uh, experiencing some well-deserved time away on vacation. They're out in Tennessee. There's this thing called Fall. Fall. Uh, That's a really great season that we don't really experience here in New Orleans, but other places do. So I'm really glad that they're getting that. Pray that it's a time just sort of refreshing uh, for them that Chad can come back, recharge, ready to continue to lead us. But we've gone through 1 Timothy and looked at really what God has uh, given to us in his word to teach us what it means to follow Jesus and to do so individually, to do so also uh, corporately as the church. And so we've looked through and seen really the, the, the essence of it. And this whole series is called ready to grow, right? So turn back real quick. I said first Timothy six, look at chapter one for just for a moment. Verse five, this is kind of how we're orienting ourselves around this book. Verse five says, now the goal of our instruction is love. That the whole thing that Paul's laying forth to to Timothy, but he's giving to us the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. So Paul given to Timothy and he's given us today what it, what it means to follow Jesus and do so in love. He started out in, in chapter one and as God... You know, warned us to, to guard against false doctrine, a misuse of the law here at the beginning. In chapter two, he goes on to a little bit more particular, how that kind of manifests itself as we pray for those in leadership and live godly lives together. He then went into how men and women are to work together for the sake of the gospel within the church. And then looking to, in chapter three, pastors and deacons, what it really means to serve in those roles, who's qualified, how should the church work. Chapter four recognizes that this kind of work is actually a spiritual work. It's not just building an organization or a corporation, but it's actually building up the people of God. That's the work of ministry. It goes into chapter 5 and says, okay, so here's how that plays out with a few different groups within the church, with widows, and it's who you should care for and how you should care for them, how you should honor the elders, honor those that are masters as well. Last week we looked in chapter 6 and the first few verses and really how it teaches us again to guard against false doctrine Recognizing that false doctrine isn't always something that says Jesus is not Lord in those explicit terms. Sometimes it comes up at the face of godliness, but at the root is actually a heart that's wanting material gain from godliness and says guard against that false doctrine as well. And so Paul's really laid out all these things of how Timothy should pastor his church, how the church should work together for the sake of the gospel, and then for us, how we should work together as a church now and how we should follow after the Lord with our whole heart. We come now to just a a great passage that's just full of meaning in verse 11 of chapter 6. Now, what I believe is Paul is really kind of coming to the end and saying, okay, here's, here's the core, right? I've given you all these instructions, all these things that you're to pursue, all these things that you're to follow after. Here, here's, here's the core of the message, right? Like if you're going to pursue something in ministry, if you're going to pursue something as you're trying to follow Jesus, here it is. This is what the Christian life should look like. So that's what we're going to look at today. Would you stand with me as we read from God's word this morning, looking at 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 11. But you, man of God, flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the presence of God, who gives life to all, of Christ Jesus, who gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate, I charge you to keep this command without fault or failure until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. God will bring this about in his own time. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable life, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal power. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word and how it instructs us. And Lord, it teaches us who you are. And so we give you praise today for you, Father, are the blessed and only sovereign. You are the King of Kings. You are the Lord of Lords. You alone are immortal. Lord, you dwell in unapproachable light. No one has seen you or can see you, and yet you have made yourself known to us in Christ. And so we thank you that we can know you. And Father, that you give us direction on how we are to live our lives and live the life we were created to live in relationship with you, honoring you in all things. So Father, as we go through this passage today, would you help us cultivate and long for thirst for righteousness and godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Lord, make us a people that look like that, that look like our Savior. Help us to be conformed to the image of Christ, Lord, as we go through this passage today. God, I thank you that you will meet us where we're at through your word. Praise you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. And You can be seated. I want to tag this sermon with the title the pursuit of godliness, the pursuit of godliness, what we're looking at today. Let me ask you a question. Ha, have you ever come to a point in your life, maybe at the end of a day or the end of a week, end of a season of life of some kind, and you're just like, how, how did I get here? Like, I wish I had done things differently. Uh, looking back over a conversation, something you said, something you did, and you just think, man, I really wish... I had made a different decision, and I had done things differently. There have been many Thanksgiving days, right, at the end of a meal, and you're like, man, I wish I had done things differently than what I did just a few minutes ago. Maybe it's uh, after something like more serious, more at the end of a conversation, and you're like, man, the things that I just said to my wife, things I just said to my child, to my brother and my sister, man, I really wish I had said things differently, just done things in a completely different kind of way, right? Maybe you come to a season of life and you're like, man, this, what have I been doing for the past few months? Like, I just wish I'd changed the course of my life in this season. This idea of regret really kind of comes up in various ways in our own life. And it's, it's encapsulated in a song that was written and is recorded in 1989 by the great poet philosopher of the 20th century, Willie Nelson who just knew how to encapsulate human experience in a song. Uh, but he said this in a song called Nothing I Can Do About It Now. He said, and I could cry for the time I've wasted, but that's a waste of time and tears. And I know just what I'd change if I went back in time somehow, but there's nothing I can do about it now. There's a season of life for me that I kind of think about this when I think about regret. And it's really that those years of college when I was a student in South Carolina. Those were great years for me. I met my wife during that time. The Lord really called me to New Orleans uh, during that time. Some really great things that happened. But when I look back on how I engaged with my church, I just really wish I had done things differently. I was involved, I would volunteer at different points in time, but those deep relationships that we're really called to, to, to have with one another within the church, I really didn't form those. And I look back at that time and I say, man, I wish I would just done things differently. I wish I had done things differently than what I did. It's this kind of feeling that, that Paul, I think is, is encouraging Timothy in these passages to pursue a life where he can come to the end of his ministry and he can come to the end of his life. And he, he won't say these statements of regret, but he will say, I've run the race. I've done it for the Lord. He encourages Timothy in these passages to live a life that's in the pursuit of godliness, not after the pursuit of the things of the world, so that he can come to the end of his life and say, I've run the race well. So as we think about this passage, I want us to think about this statement. Use it kind of in these terms is simply pursue godliness with full devotion to God. As simple as that. Like if we're going to live a life that's that's worthy of our calling, if we're going to live a life that we can look back and say, I have no regrets for what I gave my time to, what I gave myself to, it's going to be, be when we pursue the Lord, when we pursue godliness, with full devotion to God. So let's take apart that, that statement as we kind of look through these verses. In verse 11, let's look at what it means to pursue godliness. Here, Paul opens up this section and he says, But you, man of God. What Paul's is doing is he just explained to Timothy some of the false teachers that are around that he needs to guard against and the kind of life that they live of envy. Right, of pursuing quarrels, those kind of things. He said, but you, Timothy, you are not to look like this. Right? Here are the things of the world, but here are the things of God. You need to look distinct from the Lord. He says, but you, man of God, like calling up this, this image of what we see multiple times in the Old Testament of different figures being called a man of God. Right? Think back to Moses. Moses is so significant for the people of God. He was one that led God's people out of Egypt through the wilderness up to the point where they were ready to enter into the promised land. It was the same Moses that went on Mount Sinai, was able to be in the presence of the glory of God. And God gave the law to Moses and Moses came down and he was radiant from the glory of the Lord. Moses lived a different kind of life from Israel. He lived a different kind of life from the people around him. So that when he came down from the mountain and saw that there was a golden calf, he was able to command them to turn away from their idols and turn to the Lord. We see this phrase, it's man of God used also in the prophets as well. These prophets that lived very distinct kind of lives. I started reading Ezekiel and you look at all the things that he does. It's so distinct from the world. You look at Jeremiah and the experiences that he had of, of suffering and persecution. They lived distinctly from the world to pursue the Lord and to proclaim the good news of God. And Paul calls this to mind. He says, but you, man of God, you, Timothy, you, believer, are to be one that is distinct from the ways of the world. You're to live distinctly in the pursuit of the things of God, not in the pursuit of the things of the world. Do we look different? Do we look different from the things of the world? He says, but you, man of God, flee from these things and pursue these things. Right? He says, flee from the things of the world. Look back in verse 4 of chapter 6. Uh, Paul here is talking about those that are not teaching the truth of the gospel. He says, From these come envy. They're marked by envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth. Imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. Paul says, Timothy, believer, you are to flee from these things, not just simply stay away from them as best you can, not, not even get as close as you can to him, but really don't dive in very deep. He says, no, flee from these things and pursue the things of God. This word pursuit is so interesting that Paul would use that in the book of Acts in chapter nine. We see Paul, when he was named Saul, he was one that actually persecuted Christians and he was on the road to Damascus. He had letters in his hand from the authorities ready to go imprison Christians for their faith. And he was on the road ready to go do that. And the Lord stopped him in his tracks. There was a bright light from heaven, threw him off of his horse. He was blind for a few days. And ultimately he converted his life to Jesus. But he said in in, in Acts chapter nine, he said that Jesus spoke to him and said, why are you persecuting me? This word for persecuting is the same word that Paul uses now in verse 11 for pursue, to pursue right, this kind of zeal, right? Imagine the zeal that Saul had to, per, to persecute Christians. Paul's saying it with even more zeal, how much more so if he was persecuting people in, in a false kind of truth, how much more so should we with those with the truth pursue the things of godliness? He says, you're to turn to flee from these things of the world and pursue these things. What should we pursue? He says, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Let's look at these things for a moment. Righteousness. It's a word that occurs dozens of times throughout the New Testament, to live a righteous kind of life. It, It really gives this idea of a moral uprightness, to living rightly before God and before others, to separate yourself from the things of the world, separate yourself from sin, and live in the pursuit of purity, of righteousness before God. Paul says in Romans 3, he unpacks it just a little bit, Romans three twenty two: the righteousness of God, the way, how do we experience this, right? For, for those of us that are sinful and imperfect before the Lord, how are we to experience the righteousness of God? He says the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. To all who believe, since there is no distinction. Friends, if we're gonna look at this this verse and unpack all the things that Paul is calling us to, the only way that we can even know what this truly looks like in the human life is if we look to Jesus Christ. He's the one that embodied true righteousness, godliness, and all the rest. So if we're to have righteousness before God, Paul reminds us it's through faith in Jesus Christ. Looking back to, to Matthew, for to imagine uh, what Je- or recall what Jesus said about righteousness and the nature of it. He says in Matthew 5, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. He says, your righteousness that you're to live before the Lord should actually be distinct from those that appear very righteous in the world, right? The Pharisees and the scribes were those that had like just an immense amount of rules that they were to follow to seek righteousness. They had a somewhat of a good intention to actually seek to live out their faith, but they did so without the heart. They did so trying to obey the letter of the law. So from the outside, they looked great. They look you could look at that person, say their actions are completely righteous. But when Jesus began to probe and ask questions of them and understand really what their heart and their mindset was like, you began to realize that there was no heart inside of it. There there was nothing from within that was changed to pursue righteousness of God. Jesus says, your righteousness should go beyond the physical act. Your righteousness is to go beyond just going to church week after week. Your, Your righteousness is to go beyond the attendance sheet on your Bible study. Your righteousness should pierce the heart. To pierce the heart. This righteousness only comes through faith in Jesus Christ, through allowing the Lord to change your heart from within. So Paul says, flee from the things of the world and pursue with great intensity and great zeal righteousness. And then second, godliness. God, if you really unpack that term, all right? Like Paul is saying, just act like God. Like, that's it. That's all you got to do. Just be like what God is. That's such a strange statement for the Bible to make. The, this God that is, uh, as we see later on in verse six, he, yeah, 16, he says, he alone is immortal. He dwells in unapproachable light. No one has seen him. No one can see him truly in his essence. Like, how do we be godly? And yet this is something that Paul talks about a lot in First Timothy. He uses this word godliness 10 times in the New Testament. And eight of those times is found in First Timothy. So turn back with me real quick in the chapter two. This is where Paul begins to talk about this concept. Chapter two, verse two, he begins to talk about prayer and how we as the people of God are to be a people who pray for all people, including those that are in authority over us. In verse two, he says, for kings, all those in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Living a godly life means that we pray to the God over all the universe, that our lives are marked by prayer. Second, we see in chapter three, verse 16, that Paul addresses this idea and he says, the mystery of godliness is great. To really understand what that looks like and and what that means for us, it is a mystery, but then he points us in the right direction and he recalls this hymn of who Jesus is. Again, if we wanna know what what it is to be righteous or what it is to be godly, we look to Jesus. He was manifested in the flesh, verse 16. He vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Chapter 4, he goes on in verse 8 and reminds us that the training of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. That training our body is good in a lot of ways, but training in righteousness and going and pursuing godliness is beneficial in every way for our life. Chapter 5, he also brings up this idea of godliness as he's talking about families caring for uh, their widowed mothers and, and grandmothers and saying you can practice godliness in the way that you care for other people. And then finally in chapter 6, uh, we see it come up again. But he says it in 2 Timothy chapter 3 as well, and where Paul is reminding Timothy to be on guard against the people that hold to the form of godliness, but deny its power those like the, the Pharisees and the scribes that, that have the form, that, that look like they're godly, but deny the power within. And he reminds us as well in Titus 1 that, that the knowledge of the truth is what leads us to godliness. So Paul reminds us, pursue genuine godliness, being like God. In all areas, as we pray, as we worship together, the things that we pursue in this life, the things that we love, the true doctrine that we pursue, that all things should point us toward godliness. Peter later on in the first in the New Testament reminds us exactly the fact that, that the only way that we can truly be godly is through the power of Christ. In 2nd Peter chapter 1, he says, "His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness." But he goes even further, "By these he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature. Escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. We serve a God that desires that we live righteous and godly, but not a God that expects us to do it on our own. He's given us everything that we need for life and righteousness and godliness in Jesus Christ. Moving on, Paul then goes to faith and faith. And love, these ideas that the highest form of belief that we should have is belief in God and a kind of trust in him is the strongest expression of our heart. And love, this highest form of affection that we could ever love should be for God and in the highest object of the Lord. It reminds us that the attitude of our mind and the attitude of our heart should be in the pursuit of who God is and what he has done for us. Going down, he finishes with the list and says, we should pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and then endurance and gentleness. These might be the most difficult virtues to pursue in the Christian life, endurance and gentleness, right? Endurance is the ability to remain steadfast despite the circumstances of the world, right? Despite a natural disaster hitting your home, despite difficult and and difficult seasons within relationships with your family, despite difficulty in your workplace or at school, despite all these things, endurance is the ability to continue on. You think about Endurance training, right? Someone that exercises. Usually people speak about endurance training and they say it's the thing that they hate the most, right? Running or cycling or going upstairs. It's like it's the worst thing to put yourself through. But that's what we have to do in the Christian life is to pursue endurance, understanding that it takes work and it takes time and it's difficult work, but God has called us to it and He has equipped us for it in Christ. And second, we see gentleness as well. This idea of gentleness is the ability to be compassionate to those for whom it's really hard to be compassionate, right? To respond in gentleness to even our opposition, right? Remember Timothy's being instructed on how he should guard against false doctrine and difficult uh, circumstances in the church. And he's reminded to be gentle as he faces that kind of opposition. John Stott was talking about these two virtues and he said, endurance is patience in difficult circumstances and gentleness is patience with difficult people right in our life we'll experience great difficulty and circumstances and sometimes great difficulty with people but God has called us to live a godly life before him even in the midst of all these things remembering that the the power that we have to live in this kind of way only comes from Jesus Christ he's the picture of all of these things embodied in human form He's the one that reminded us that we are to hunger and thirst for righteousness in all we do. So the question for us is, can we say truly that these things, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness, these are markers of our own life. I think sometimes it's good for us to kind of take inventory of how we spend our time and the things that we do, the way we respond in different situations. So you might even jot this down, Uh, like take, take a moment and go back over this past week through your calendar or the things that you did, through your bank account, the things that you spent your money on, and then think about the things you daydream about. Like, where does your mind go? Where do you spend your mind imagining, spend your time imagining, and imagine, like, is this something that is pursuing with great zeal, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness? The question for us is, what are we pursuing, right? In Saul's life, before he took on the name Paul and was changed by Jesus, he was pursuing false doctrine. He was pursuing the end of the Christian movement and yet God took a hold of his life and changed the course of his life so he could pursue the things of the Lord. For us we pursue so many things in this life for some it's the career that we have right and we're willing to sacrifice time with family we're willing to sacrifice any other kind of uh just fun things that we get to do in life so that we can pursue put all of our energy into our career for others it's it's the pursuit of a good grade right the students in the room you know what that's like man it's like it just feels like the whole world revolves around that grade or that person you know you're pursuing a spouse like that's what i'm putting all my energy in that's what i need that's what i'm wanting what do you pursue in your life if you were to take inventory of what you spent your time on what you spent your money on what you spent your your time and your mind on what are you pursuing in this life pursuit of godliness is costly It requires sacrifice from us, but it gives us eternal life. It gives us exactly what we're longing for and exactly what we need when we pursue these things, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. So God is calling us this morning to pursue godliness, but do so with full devotion to God. Let's look at that idea, with full devotion to the Lord. We've already looked at the zeal that Paul is calling us to with pursuing these things. We'll look at verse 12. He says, fight the good fight of the faith take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This idea of fighting the good fight comes up already earlier in 1 Timothy, but Paul's reminding, Timothy, reminding us today that the Christian life is not something that can be lived passively. It's something actually that we must live actively in this life and gives us the imagery of fighting the good fight of the faith, this athletic imagery, right? Think about a wrestler. I saw a video one time, this is crazy. I don't watch wrestling, but there's a wrestler getting ready for a match, and he had uh, an Olympic bar that you use for like bench presses and stuff, and just knocking his shins against that bar. I mean, he was getting himself ready mentally, physically, in every way for a fight. And that's the kind of imagery that Paul gives us. Fight the good fight, not of just putting down the opposition, but fight the good fight of the faith, of believing in the Lord, of enduring and responding in gentleness to the opposition of the faith, right? An old Christian from the early century said it this way, you're about to enter a noble contest in which the living God acts as a part of the superintendent and the Holy Spirit is your trainer. A contest whose, eternity, whose crown is eternity, whose pride is angelic nature, citizenship in heaven forever and ever. Is this how we pursue the Christian life, right? That's the question for us. Do we understand living in obedience to the Lord, like forgiving one another? Do we understand that that act of forgiving takes work? It takes intentionality and it's part of fighting the good fight of the faith. Do we live in that way. Paul also says, not just fight the good fight of the faith, but take hold of eternal life to which you are called and about which you've made a, a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He says, take hold of eternal life. Timothy is already a believer, right? Like he he's not, Paul's not writing this to try to convert Timothy. Timothy's been following the Lord for some time. He's a leader now in the church. And yet Paul is still reminding him, take hold of eternal life, right? Paul's not saying earn your salvation, but he's saying, take hold of it. Make it your own. Live it out in your own life. There's things in this life that we might possess, but we don't really take hold of or we don't use, right? Like, I don't want to shame anybody, but you know that Christmas gift that you possess that you haven't touched in years and you just can't like give it away because somebody gave it. But like, you got it, but you don't use it, you know? There are other things that we might possess that we don't. Use. Like uh, having children has been uh, is great for, for me and Brittany. We love Isetta. We're excited for number two in December. Um, and there's this little thing called like a a, a tax break that ha- that happens as well when you have kids, which is pretty great. That's a good that's a good thing. But imagine like how crazy would it be if I had that ability, I had that in my possession to write that on the taxes and stuff. But I was like, eh, it'd be right. You know, you you probably want to question my reasoning. Imagine, like, you're someone living in New Orleans in the summer of 2023, and you've got an air conditioning unit, and you're just like, nah, it'll be all right. Yeah, I don't, it's okay. You think I'm crazy, right? Even more so, that's what Paul, this is the thing that, that God's word has in mind as he says, take hold of eternal life. If you think that it's insane to have an AC unit and not use it in New Orleans in the summer of 2023, how much more bizarre is it to have eternal life and yet not take hold of it? And yet, that's the way that sometimes we live our life. I'm guilty of different seasons of my life having the inheritance that God has given me in Christ Jesus, and yet not taking hold of it, not making it the central part of my life, of not allowing my the eternal life that I have in Christ to orient the decisions that I make, relationships that I pursue, the things that I purchase, allowing it to pervade my thoughts. There's so many times in our life where we have, we are believers. We, we've been saved by the grace of God and yet we don't take hold of eternal life. Are you taking hold of your salvation today? Go back through and the rhythms of your life and the way that you spend your money and the conversations that you enter and the way that you treat people. Does it reflect the fact that you're taking hold of eternal life and say, I'm living this out. I'm gonna fight the good fight of the faith to live For the sake of the Lord and to pursue godliness with full devotion, with full devotion. Paul calls Timothy to do this in the presence of God who gives life to all. For for Paul, this devotion to the Lord cost him his life. For many Christians over the centuries, it was a costly kind of devotion. To truly take hold of eternal life meant letting go of the things of the world. We just heard from a friend who's serving in another culture where the believers there taking hold of eternal life means letting go of the comforts of the world there was a brother that lost his home because of his faith others that are experiencing persecution in their business and all kinds of things taking hold of eternal life is costly but we do so in the presence of god who gives life to all but it's like paul's reminding us Yes, it's costly in this life to pursue the things of God, yet we serve a God who is over all things, who is the giver of life itself. Your salvation may cost you your life, and yet we serve one who has given us eternal life. And then Paul reminds us of the model that we have for this kind of life. Look at verse 13. He says, In the presence of God who gives life to all, and of Christ Jesus, who gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate. And then he gives the charge to Timothy to live out his faith. It's as if he's painting this picture of like the confession that you're to make in your life, the way that you're to live out your own faith should actually model your savior, should model your king. Let's think about like what, what kind of confession did Jesus make specifically before Pontius Pilate? Like if we were to look through the gospels and see the kind of life that Jesus lived, there were a number of things that he did, a number of miracles that he performed, a number of things that he said that opened the eyes and the hearts of many people to experience the kingdom of God. But he came proclaiming that he was the Messiah, right? All all, the, all of his work throughout his life really led to this point, this realization that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the one that was promised in the Old Testament. He's the one that has come that will set his people free, that will forgive them, cleanse them of their sins and their iniquity. He's preaching that kind of kingdom, one where people, their hearts will be would be changed and God would be present. He made that confession that he was the son of God. He proclaimed the kingdom. He proclaimed the way to salvation. And he did that on the way to the cross. Jesus' confession ultimately came to the point where he was before Pilate being sentenced to death. And he was asked, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus' response is, you say that I am. In that time, there were many accusations that were being thrown against him by the Pharisees and the scribes that were present. He didn't answer those, all he affirmed, but he was the king of the Jews. He was the king over all creation. And that kind of confession, the the confession that, that clung to the good news of who God is and what he's doing for his people, led Jesus to the cross. He did so intentionally. He set his face toward Jerusalem and said that he would intentionally go. He knew what the road had before him and yet he went to the cross for you and for me and died the death that we deserved. Yet he was ultimately had all authority on heaven and earth given to him because he defeated death itself. He was raised from the dead. And so we serve a victorious king and Paul reminds us that your confession should be modeled after the confession of Jesus Christ before Pontius Pilate. Whether it costs you Um, money, or time, or relationships, or your very life, Paul is reminding Timothy, and he's reminding us today that we should model our confession, our life, our devotion, after that of Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us. We do so giving our life to a God who gives life to all who will be with us in the midst of it all. And so Paul gives this high charge. He says, I charge you to keep this command without fault or failure until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says, do this, remember that Christ Jesus came into the world, died and rose again, ascended into heaven, but he left us the promise that he would return one day. So the life that we live before God in full devotion is one that is oriented to a king that lives and a king that will return one day. One where we are longing for the appearance of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to return. So with all this in mind, Paul charges Timothy and charges us today to pursue these things until the appearing of Lord Jesus Christ. We do this as we pursue godliness as what we've looked at so far, pursuing godliness with full devotion to God. Ultimately, the life that we live is to be an act of worship to the Lord. Just very quickly, let's look at verse 15 and 16. It says God will bring this about in his own time. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and the lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, who no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal power. Amen. Paul's painting this picture for us that the God that we are called to devote our lives to is worthy of our devotion. Think about the things that the world tells us we should devote our lives to. Are they worthy of everything that we are? So many times there are things that pass away. Material gain, as we were reminded last week in the verses preceding this, material things will pass away, but the word of the Lord remains forever. The one that we are called to devote our lives to completely is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and Lord of lords. He's reminding Timothy in a time when the authorities that Timothy was supposed to be praying for were not good leaders. They were people that actually were seeking to persecute Christians and persecute those. But he was reminding us today that we serve a God who is sovereign over all things. He's the king over all kings. He's the Lord over all lords. Reminds us as well, he alone is immortal. Death has no place in the presence of God. He existed from all eternity. He will exist throughout all eternity. And he is the one that gives life to us and breath in our lungs. And he says, and who lives in unapproachable light. What an interesting statement that Paul makes, reminding us of, remember when Moses went up on the mountain, the glory of the Lord just was like a consuming fire on the mountain. And the Psalms remind us that by the light of God, we see light itself. In 1 John, that God is light. He is light the one that will open our eyes, the one that gives life to all. And yet this one whom no one has seen or can see has been made known to us so that we can devote our lives to him. He's been made known to us ultimately through Jesus Christ, who was the full manifestation of who God is. And he showed us the way that we might live in righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. This is the life that we've been called to live by the Lord. So the question for us today very simply, are we living that kind of life? As we think about the way that we spend our time, the way we spend our money, the things that we think about. Are we pursuing with great zeal? Remember the zeal that Paul had for the persecution of the church. Are we pursuing an even, even greater passion, the pursuit of the things of God? For some of you this morning, you, you're hearing these things and you're, you're wondering, like, maybe I've never really experienced God working on me changing my heart, drawing me to himself. I mean, we talk about this one, this God who's mortal and dwells in unapproachable light and yet has made himself known. Like maybe I don't know who this God is. This is a time for you. So we're about to sing a song in just a moment to really respond and say, God, I, I accept the gift of salvation, that Jesus came, died for me, made God known to the world. I accept this gift of salvation. I'll be up at the front. This is a time for you to respond in that way. But for many in the room, and we know know that like the majority of us are believers here in this room. This is a call from God's word today to direct our lives and devote our lives to the ways of the Lord. Uh, Paul is calling not just Timothy, not just pastors in general, but all believers to flee from the things of the world and to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, endurance, and gentleness. Some of us need to just take a moment and just say, "God, would you would you cultivate these things in my heart?" Like, I, like I've, I've been tossed around by by so many. Like, work is just really stressful. I'm really not sure how to handle this relationship in my family. Like, there's just so much, and I've just kind of like let my faith fade away. For some of us this morning, we just need to pray. Like, God, would you would you change my heart and change my mind? Help me to live in such a way that's obedient to your word. Like, like letting letting go the things of the world and really holding, holding fast, holding dearly to eternal life, finding the good side of the faith. That's the kind of life that we're called to live. So This is the time for us to respond. You pray uh, that these steps are open to come up and to pray uh, with someone, but respond as the Lord leads. Let me pray for us as we do. Father, we thank you for your word, God, and that you call us to a new life, not just to change our own ways and our own power, Lord, but you call us to submit ourselves to you so that you can make us righteous and godly. You fill us up with faith and love and you enable us to go out into the world living with endurance and gentleness. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts. Lord, for those that have not yet believed, Lord, would they submit their lives to you knowing that the good life that we're longing for is found only in Jesus Christ. And remind those of us who have believed that the good life that we're longing for is only found in Jesus Christ. Lord, there's so many things we can give ourselves to. Lord, would you remind us what the kind of life you're calling us to this morning. Help us to respond in obedience. In Jesus' name. Amen.